0: Well, we are going to begin a um, new series uh, this week, um, a series that I've called, I've actually called it two things, I've called it Hard Questions and Questions, um, uh, and uh, so I need to go back and fix the artwork so they agree. So so questions, and the idea of questions is that there are questions that we have about our faith, and uh, if we don't have questions about our faith, there are people we know who do. There are certainly many people who do have questions about the Christian faith, and um and uh, there are questions I think that increasingly today um, demand an answer. So, so let me let me explain what I mean by demand an answer. Um, in the wake of nine eleven, um, there was a, a lot of people who who went around and said this is a problem with uh, militant Islam. That the problem with the world is is militant Islam, and uh, that that kind of lasted about three months until people like the ones up there said no, the problem isn't militant Islam. The problem is religion that religion poisons everything, to quote Christopher Hitchens. And so there there arose in our country and and, uh, elsewhere um, uh, a group of people called the New Atheists, And they, they said that the problem with, with atheism isn't that it's just a little hobby that you can ignore, that people, the problem with religion isn't just everyone needs a hobby and you can enjoy your little hobby, the problem with religion is it causes people to do bad things. And so these are, these are four gentlemen, they're called the, uh, four horsemen of the new atheist movement. Uh, Richard Dawkins there, uh, at the top corner, um, Christopher Hitchens, who, who is now dead but was writing very, um, very, uh, Flowery prose about about atheism uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, Sam Harris and um, Daniel Dennett. Um, and of those, the one that I am the most familiar with is Sam Harris. Sam Harris has a um, YouTube channel with a hundred thousand uh, views on on a typical uh, video. He has a million people listen to his podcast. He has a million followers on Twitter. And he has 9,000 supporters, people who financially support him on Patreon. So that's an example of someone who, and of course his books have sold very well as well. So um, he's an example of somebody who has a big platform, and he is asking questions of the church. And when someone like Sam Harris asks questions of the church it really demands an answer because our silence um, is interpreted as not having an answer. So I think that's one of the reasons that the questions demand an answer. But the other is that they are good questions, um, that people have genuine, real questions And I think they want to know the answer to these questions. So what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is looking at some of these good questions that people have. Today we're going to look at one I've called The Virtuous Heathen, um, and uh, I'll explain that title in a minute. But um, the question goes like this, if you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, what happens to virtuous people in places and times who never heard about Jesus? I uh, conducted a survey over the last couple of weeks, asking people to help me uh, prioritize and rank these questions. And this was by far the most popular one. About a quarter of, of you um, responded to that survey, and this was on almost every almost every response. People had this question: um, What happens to people who never heard about Jesus? If you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, what happens? to virtuous people in places and times who never heard about him. And um, so uh, we have a we have a fill-in-the-blank uh, worship service today, so uh, it's something different. Um, but the answer to that question, or the answer that I'm going to argue for, is this. It is that we don't know, but we have good hope for all. So we don't know, but we have good hope for all. And um, let me uh, kind of walk us through that. First of all, I need—I do need to explain the title. Um, I, I would not recommend you use the word heathen or pagan in a conversation with someone who's a heathen or a pagan, um, so uh, because it is understood very reasonably to be an insult. So, what—what um, what I just—just um, uh, just so you understand where the term comes from, uh, the word pagan means a villager and it was a put down by people in the city uh people who lived in the big cities like Rome and Athens they would refer to people who lived out in the country um, the hillbillies as pagans and they still clung to they they, they might even have bitterly clung to their um, their uh, old school religion that they they still worship the the gods you know Jupiter and Mars and people like that but we sophisticated urban elite Um, we worship this new God that we've heard about called Jesus. So it became this kind of um, uh, term that, that was an insult for the hillbillies, but it came to take on this idea of they are people who don't follow our religion. And heathen means the same thing. Pagan is a Latin word. Heathen is a Germanic word. It means somebody who lives out on the heath, somebody who lives out in the boondocks so the both words have the same have the same basic origin and they mean people who aren't part of the city and it's a put down and so i wouldn't recommend you um, you use those words uh, i would say somebody who doesn't follow uh, jesus might be a good a good uh, a start so so um, so that's that's a kind of just a caution if you're talking to a heathen uh, you might not want to use that word. Um but that uh, but but I want to go back to my answer. I said that the answer is we don't know but we are to have good hope for all. And now um I don't know about you but if I was sitting in in the pew I would be saying to myself, yeah, but what's the real answer? And what I would really be thinking is this. I'd be thinking is that answer just wishy-washy watered-down modernist pretend Christianity? Is this Christian fake news? Is Christianity really an angry religion? that is secretly happy that there are people who will never hear about Jesus and will go to hell and die for uh, and burn forever because of it I think a lot of people have that question and so if they hear an answer that doesn't jibe with that they're going to say wait a minute isn't that just some watered down version what is the real Christian teaching so what I want to do um, in our time together is talk about what is the real Christian teaching because you shouldn't just take my word for it and say sure Christians believe that maybe you know maybe maybe not so I want to begin with Dante. Uh, Dante. So this is a picture of Dante and his friend Virgil uh, crossing the River Styx. That's Charon in the front, and you can see all the doomed souls there in the water. Um, so um, this is this is, I think, what a lot of people's image of of the afterlife is. That that Christians believe that this is where you're headed if you don't <coughs> do the right things with respect to God. And Christians can't even agree on what those are. But but um, but. Whatever those are, if you don't do the right thing, then then you're going to get it. Um, and Dante is one of the people most responsible for for uh, making that memorable in this vivid imagery in the Divine Comedy. Dante has all these wonderful pictures of of wonderful slash terrifying pictures of hell. Um, but it's interesting. Dante is guided on his journey by Virgil, a Roman um, uh, uh, poet uh, who did not know Jesus. And because he had a soft spot, it turns out Dante, who was very, very fine with with terrorizing people throughout the Middle Ages with pictures of of a of, uh, hell that, that awaited them, was very uncomfortable with the thought that some of his favorite pagans would wind up in hell. So he put them in the very, very least objectionable part of hell. He put them up in level one, right, kind of the penthouse view of hell. So people like Virgil wind up. Yes, they're they're condemned, but they get kind of the very condemnation light. So, if, so Dante, um, that was Dante's picture. Here's another painting. A lot of people enjoy this image of uh, uh, Virgil and Dante going through hell together, seeing all kinds of things that are not in the Bible. That Dante's picture of of perdition, Dante's picture of the Inferno, is largely. Created out of the medieval imagination. And, uh, it's very difficult to find things in there that are actually based on the New Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. So, so Dante is probably not a good place to start. Um, but, but it, but it occupies so much of our, uh, of our imagination. We have to, we have to go there. So what I'd like to do instead of looking at Dante and kind of the, the, the religion that is in the back of our heads is to actually look and see what does our faith say? What do the leading Christians down through the ages say about our faith? Well, I put some in columns here. So um, uh, it doesn't matter who these people are, but they are people who are known by their names. So um, uh, Christian theologians, Justin Martyr, he was a uh, um, uh, Christian uh, leader in the 2nd uh, century. Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria was as well. Origen and Tertullian for, were from the 3rd century. Athanasius from the 4th century. They all believed that there was a place in in, in paradise for the virtuous heathen, the virtuous pagan. There was a, a strong opponent to that view who operated in the 4th century, Augustine, St. Augustine. So uh, based on just numbers so far, I'd have to say the, uh, the, the liberal modern view is actually winning. Um, if you go to the, the Middle Ages, you get people like Thomas Aquinas who said that the virtuous pagans, God would reach out to them. And Calvin is credited in the other column. I actually, of, of all those scholars, the one I know best is Calvin. And I just want to give you an example of what Calvin said. Calvin said, there is no other way to enter the life unless the church conceive us in her womb. Away from her bosom, one cannot hope for salvation. So people would say, okay, Calvin was in the, you've got to be, you've got to be a Christian. You've got to be a part of the church in order to be saved. People might say that. But Calvin was a Protestant reformer and he was talking about, um, Have you broken away? Have you started a new church? And Calvin was saying no. And in fact, this is what he said about uh, people who break away from churches. He said the apostates who have a passion, he was condemning them, for splitting churches, in effect driving the sheep from their fold and casting them into the jaws of wolves. So he wasn't saying that there was no hope for people outside the church. He was saying there's no hope for people who are cruelly driven out of the church. That's what he was saying. And so he was arguing against ever splitting a church. When he's talking about people outside the church, he says this. He says that, um, that that phrase refers not only to the visible church, but also to all God's elect. We must leave to God alone the knowledge of His church, whose foundation is His secret election. So even Calvin, I would say, is not as strong on the idea of of uh, you must be uh, you must be uh, you must have heard about Jesus to be saved. So. As I kind of put all that together, I would say the earlier you are as a Christian, the closer you are to the New Testament, the more likely you are to say, you know what, there's a spot in heaven. There's a spot uh, for you in in God's redemptive plan. So um, it seems like as we got further along, people became a little more hard about it, hard-edged so um, I want to give you some examples. So those are those are the writers. I want to talk about some some confessions. The Presbyterian Church is a confessional church, so we've got these documents down through the years. Um, the the phrase I used uh, earlier, "We are to have good hope for all," comes from the Second Helvetic Confession. That's from 1562. So again, this is not a modernist invention. People kind of want to water down the faith. Um, now, to be fair, the Westminster um, Assembly in 1640 in the 1640s, they said those. They who never having heard the gospel know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him cannot be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives, in other words, to live good virtuous lives according to the light of nature of the laws that religion of the religion which they profess. Neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone who is the savior only of his body, the church. So the Westminster divines very much in the no, no hope for the virtuous pagan camp. And then, the the now dealing with moderns. Uh, this was from 1998. This is the most recent recent um, catechism that our church has uh, come up with. It's the study catechism, and it's in this kind of weird state. It's kind of in limbo. It's the first level of condemnation. It it got halfway approved back in 1998, and then it was kind of left there. And it says this, it says, How God will deal with those who do not know or follow Christ, but who follow another tradition, we cannot finally say. So you can see the church has been all over the place in this. Um, Just for representation, let me include some Methodists. Methodists don't have confessions, so I have to actually go read Methodist thinkers, which is harder. So this is from a Methodist. Um, All children who are not willing transgressors and all irresponsible persons, irresponsible meaning people who have no uh, legal capacity, um, uh, all irresponsible persons are saved by the grace of God, manifest in the atoning work of Christ, and further, that all in every nation, in other words, uh, non-Christian nations, who fear God and work righteousness are accepted of him through the Christ that died for them, though they have not heard of him. So this is a very blunt, very, very uh, clear expression. I mean, the language is a little flowery, but very clearly stating that um, that this is a Methodist uh, belief and has been from the very beginning of Methodism. So you can see theologians, confessions, um, and uh, the early writers of the church—they uh, are kind of all over the place. I would say the preponderance of thinking seems to be for uh, leaving some room for uh, people to be saved outside the church. So let me let me uh, cut to the chase here. What does Jesus say, right? You know, before my head explodes. You know, Calvin's fine. But what does Jesus say? So um, in our reading today, we heard somebody asked Jesus, um, will only a few be saved? And I think that's kind of the the first century Jewish version of this question. Will only a few be saved? And Jesus says, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter but fail. And when I read that, I kind of (laughs) thought, well, maybe Jesus didn't hear the question. I want to know how many people are going to get saved. And Jesus says, you work hard. He says, you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. Jesus, I don't care about, you know, we're not talking about me, we're talking about them. And Jesus is saying, why don't you stay focused on you? He says, you will be thrown out, and people will come from all over the world. Since you're interested in those people, they'll be from all over the world. And they will take their places in the kingdom of God. But note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Jesus is hard to understand. I think this is the typical Jesus we we know and admire. People come to him with a trick question and Jesus slips out of their grasp. Jesus will not be pinned down on this subject. Um, and so um, if I was to characterize what Jesus is saying, it would be this. It's, I'll worry about the heathen. You aren't in any position to judge. He says, you worry about yourself. So what I want to do now is look at the, the basis for why did all those theologians and all those confessional statements uh, come to the, the kind of half-hearted non-conclusion that they came to. So we're going to look at that. And I'm going to begin, as I usually do, whenever I'm talking seriously about heaven, um, I'm going to begin by quibbling. Heaven is not where we're going to. Heaven is where Jesus will come from to save us. We talked about that just last week. We talked about the new heaven and the new earth, um, the the new creation that God is making, that uh, Jesus will come from heaven to rescue us. And I know that there's Christians who say otherwise, and they're wrong. So, um, <laughs> so why why do I think they're wrong? I, all kinds of reasons. The ones we heard last week, but here's some fresh ones. So we are citizens of heaven, right? Citizens. Paul is writing to a church in. In Philippi, remember this summer we had the, the greetings from Greece and we talked about Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony. It is out in Greece and they're saying, yes, but you're citizens of Rome. He's saying, you Philippians, you know about how citizenship works. You can be a citizen of a place you don't live in. He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return. In the same way that a Roman living in Greece might want the emperor to come visit, Paul is saying, we are citizens of heaven here and we're waiting for him to return as our Savior. And then in um, Second Peter, uh what is it that gets what is it get that gets destroyed here? Is it the earth? He says the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in a fire, and the earth and everything in it will be found. It will be found to deserve judgment, but it's not passing away. The heavens pass away, but not the earth. So if we're going to go to kind of end times chronology and trying to figure out what's going on in the Bible, I, I go back to my point. Heaven is the place where Jesus will come from, not the place we go to. The other part of this question that I'm going to quibble with is that it is not our belief that gets us into, um, that, that saves us. God's grace, not our belief, is the basis of our salvation. And some more texts to kind of base that. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me." He says, "He says it really doesn't matter what you do. Um, you can't get there by yourself. No one comes to the Father except through me." The apostle Paul writes this: "God saved us, saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God." Paul says, "Belief is necessary, but belief is not what saves you. What saves you is." The finished work of Jesus Christ, and he goes on to say, "Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. Even believing is doing something." He says that you don't get rewarded for believing. Salvation is a gift from from God, and none of us can boast. And then he goes on to talk to them, and he, uh, the, uh, these Ephesians, and he says, "You were once far away, and God found you. Right? You were far away, and God found you." He says, and "You've been brought near to through the blood of Christ." And then in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. He says, he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. He says, what do you have that God hasn't given you? You're a Corinthian. You didn't know about Jesus until I showed up a couple of months ago. Who are you to judge the heathen outside? He says everything you 've got has been a gift from God. If everything you have is a gift from God, why boast as though it were not so So those are my two quibbles. Um, belief is not what saves you, and jesus isn 't coming to take us to heaven we don 't go to heaven whether or not we believe heaven comes to us so that 's kind of the quibbles now let 's talk about the real subject here. The first thing is this only God can judge who is virtuous and um, let me let me um Let me give you an example of that. Today is the October twenty-first, twenty eighteen. Seventy-four years ago today, this ship, the H.M.A.S. HMAS Australia, was sailing around in the Leyte Gulf, and it was struck right where the arrow is by an airplane. It killed the captain and uh, I think forty odd other people on board the ship. And it is arguably uh, the first kamikaze strike in the World, world War II. Um, it was certainly struck by a Japanese plane. It's not clear. People argue, scholars of World War II argue, over whether or not that was actually a kamikaze strike or he, his, his ship was... Um, his plane was, was going down and he figured he might as well get something out of it. If it wasn't, we know that three days later there were intentional kamikaze strikes. So it may have been one. There were already people being trained for that purpose. So was that the first kamikaze strike or not? We don't know. What we do know is that there were hundreds and hundreds of kamikaze strikes all during World War II by people who thought that they were virtuous. They did not know Jesus. They had never heard about Jesus. And they were convinced they were virtuous. So who decides who is virtuous? Let me show you one of them. This is not this, the guy from um, uh, 74 years ago. This, this photograph was taken in 1945. Here's a crew, uh, a, a squadron of people who are being trained to be kamikazes. And I was struck. He's holding a puppy. This is not a monster. This is somebody who is utterly convinced by his culture, by his, um, by his upbringing in society that he was virtuous. So who decides what is virtue? And if virtue is the only standard that God looks at, how does God sort all that out? So, the um this is not a new question to our faith. The the writer of Proverbs said this there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. How do we know what what virtue really is? Isaiah put it this way, he says, We are all infected and impure with sin, right? I mean I know that. I don't know. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I mean, I know that that's true of me. And if you don't believe me, ask my family. This is, this is something we realize that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. We, we are saved and yet at the same time we know how much sin clings to us. So how can we even judge whether we're being virtuous? How hard is it for you to talk yourself into doing something and say this is actually the right thing to do and it just happens to be the thing you want to do? He says, when we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Um, Jeremiah was even worse. He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The apostle Paul talks to, in his letter to the Romans. He says, he says, he, God, will judge everyone according to what they have done. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. That God has put enough law into their hearts that they would know whether they're breaking it. And he says, and when the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law by when they fail to obey it. So this is a big topic. How do you sort out truth claims? Who knows what is virtuous? And we're actually going to talk about that next week. So next week in truth claims, we're going to talk about that. But that brings us to the first real lesson. If we're talking to Sam Harris, and Sam Harris says, says yeah, you know, your God wants people to to burn in hell, but I don't. I would say to Sam Harris, you know what, I believe in a God who has a much bigger heart for the heathen than I do, and much bigger than you do, Sam. I don't believe you love the heathen more than the God who sent his son to save them. You are not more concerned about a virtuous heathen than God is. None of, none of us are. We heard it earlier in our psalm reading today, when the Lord registers the nations, he will say they have all become citizens of Jerusalem. God cares about people who are not part of the people of God. People will come from many nations and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. In the New Testament, the very first page of the New Testament, the way that the, the writings are documented for us or provided to us today, in Matthew's account of the biography of Jesus, he begins here. He begins with the fact that Jesus is from the nations. He says that he talks about the, the, the people that Jesus is related to, David and Abraham, but then he says, "Salmon, one of the people in the biography, um, in the genealogy, was the father who was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was from the surrounding nations, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth, again, a foreigner. God has a heart for the foreigners, and even Jesus, even the most perfect person who's ever lived, has foreign blood. Jesus himself." When you think about Jesus, when did Jesus lose his temper? Right? When did he turn over tables? He went. He went into the temple and he said, "It has been said, um, it has been written, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves." Jesus is upset because the house of prayer should be for all nations. The people who made it easy for Jews, who show up with the right kind of money, and hard for everyone else. Jesus says. You have made it a den of thieves, because you do not care that it be, remain a house of prayer for all nations. In his first sermon, recorded in Nazareth, um, in his hometown, Jesus preaches a sermon, and he says, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time. He refers to the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says, he says but who did God send a prophet to? The prophet Elijah was sent to a foreigner, the widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. He says, he goes on, he says, And many in Israel had leprosy at the time of the prophet Elisha, but only the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. God has a heart for the foreigner. Jesus was clear on that in his first sermon. And, of course, his most famous parable, perhaps, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? We all know this, this parable, and we all know that it wasn't the person we expected. It wasn't the Levite. It wasn't the priest. It was the foreigner. And it is such an offensive thing to say that the man Jesus is talking to cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan, so he says the one who showed compassion. Jesus has a heart for the foreigner. You do not love the heathen more than God does. And that brings us to the last point. The proof of it is Jesus said, I'm going to create an institution called the church. It's going to be my body on earth, and I'm going to give it one mission. And the mission is to make disciples. Jesus told the church to make disciples. The um, the writer of uh, of 1 Kings uh, looked forward to this. He said, in the future... Um, this is Solomon opening the, the dedication of the temple. He's saying, what is the temple for? And he lists all the usual things you would expect a temple to be put together for. But then he says this. He says, in the future, foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel, will hear of you and they will come to this place. And listen when the foreigner prays. Jesus says in his Sermon in the Mount, he says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. Let your good deeds shine out. For all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Jesus gives us this commission. And of course, he gives the great commission. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Apostle Paul says this is the exact same thing Jesus told him. He says when he's recounting his conversion on the road to Damascus, um, Jesus told him this, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul says this, but how can they call on him to save them unless they, be- unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? Jesus cares so much about the heathen that he sends you and I to reach out to them, that we have been given a mission. And it's not to take care of ourselves. It's not to build bigger temples. It's not to pray more. It's not to do all the things we might expect. It is to make disciples. Jesus did not give us an answer to the question that we would bring, but He did give us a mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it would be so easy for us if, if there were a straightforward answer. If it just said flatly, don't worry about those foreigners. I've got, I've got them under control. But instead it gives us a mission. It says, go to the foreigner. Tell them the good news. And I guess, oh Lord, that's because you, you know our hearts and you know that we would, we would, we would either be motivated out of a thought that you are a cruel God and we're doing this reluctantly, but because it's the only thing we can do to save people that you would otherwise harm. Or we would say, I don't know those foreigners anything. And so you keep us in an ambiguous space. You say, I love them, now go to them. So Lord, I pray that you would equip this church, give us what we need so that we can be part of your mission to the virtuous heathens and, and to be a light to the unvirtuous heathen. Help us, oh Lord, to show your love and to be diligent in our work. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.